So please open your Bibles, if you have not, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5, as Jen read for us. And throughout the Bible, there are passages that have been misinterpreted and misapplied for long stretches of time. For, for whatever reason, a common understanding of a particular passage takes hold and begins to influence the church and how they view the passage. But when you start to look at the context of it and the real meaning of it, you realize, hey, this is flawed. So some examples. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is a verse that's been used to encourage thousands of graduates and a verse that sort of gives this impression that God wants you to follow all of your dreams and wants to give you everything you dream. But the actual context of this is God is saying, I'm gonna rescue and redeem Israel out of exile, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is a passage about Jesus, not following your dreams. Philippians 4.13 is another great example. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I mean, professional athletes love to put that on the eye black, if you've seen that, you know, Tim Tebow. Love Tim Tebow, but he's, that's, that's kind of what he's known for. And this passage is commonly interpreted, hey, chase your dreams. You can do big things in life, big things from God. But if you look at the context, what Paul is actually saying is I can endure suffering. No, no one wants to apply it that way. <laughs> but that is how this, that verse is, is actually directly applied. Or Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Uh, this is a verse that is used to deflect judgment or, or criticism or someone bringing you feedback that you don't like. Well, don't judge me. But in the, pa- the context of the passage, it's warning against hypocrisy, not sort of a flat rejection of judgment altogether. And so if we look at the verses that have been commonly misinterpreted and misapplied, we have to add our, ver- our passage for this morning to that list. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. And sadly, this is a passage in its misapplication and misinterpretation has done great damage to men, to women, and to marriages. At the risk of overstating it, the the common interpretation and application of this probably is one of the most prominent ways that evangelicals have sort of distorted their view of sex and the sexual relationship. And, And it's sobering, but it's something we need to come to grips with. It's something we need to be honest about. And it's something that we're going to tackle this morning. And really, here is the unfortunate irony in all of that, is what this passage is actually calling us to is something beautiful and profound and powerful, something that could really transform your marriage. And yet, the actual meaning and the actual call in this passage is often obscured behind other things. And so here's what I want you to hear above everything else is the essence of this passage. I want to say this is the main point for us this morning that we're going to go and then look at and discover. This, this main idea, this essence from 1 Corinthians 7.1 is this, is that sex in marriage is to be an expression of self-giving love and intimacy that images Christ-like love. Let me say that again. Sex in marriage is to be an expression of self-giving love and intimacy that images Christ-like love. Now, let me say a couple things before we, we start. One, I'll be honest, I did not want to preach this sermon outside. Like one of the reasons that I I preached on baptism directly last week is because I was trying to avoid an outdoor service to preach this sermon. But then it's like, you know what? That's a sweat box. And no one was going to pay attention to anything I had to say if we were sweating it out in there. So like, here we are outside. And, and, And in many ways, I love worshiping outside, but there's added distractions in some ways. And preaching a passage like this really requires a focus and being locked in. So I just want to encourage you. I know it's a, it's a relatively beautiful morning, even though it's a little warm sitting in the shade. 
And, and there are some distractions, you know, nature and other things. But I just want to ask, please lock in because this is an important passage to hear. And it's important for us to, to recognize and, and sort of deprogram some things and allow God's word to shape, uh, reform us in some other ways. Let me also say this for those of you that are newer to First City or this is your first Sunday. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> again. This is quite the passage to, to have for your first Sunday at First City. <laughs> of, all the, of all the messages that I could sort of like, hey, this is a great message for someone the first time to come, I wouldn't necessarily choose this one. However, this is who we are as a church. This is what we do as a church. We largely on Sundays preach through books of the Bible. And when you do that, you just sort of follow where God's word takes you. And sometimes it takes you in places you wouldn't necessarily choose to go, but it's places that we need to go. And that's what I want us to, to recognize this morning is that God's word has something powerful for us and it's taking us somewhere because we need to hear this. And so welcome to First City Church. We invite you as we continue this study of going through the book of 1 Corinthians to join us. We don't have this figured out. But look, we need Jesus. We're honest about this. We need Jesus to rescue and redeem us and we need Jesus to transform our hearts. And so we invite you to join us in this journey. And, and that's the, the heart in which I hope you hear this passage this morning. So with that added bit of introduction, uh, here's where we're going to go this morning. One, I, I want to walk through this passage and sort of look at what is this passage actually saying? What, what is this teaching of 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 5? And then I want to apply it. And in applying it, I want to sort of deconstruct some of the common ways this passage has been taught and then sort of reconstruct what this passage is actually pointing us to and what does it look like to walk in that. So let's first uh, walk through this passage and see what it has to say about the role and the importance of sex in marriage. And so in verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul writes this, Now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so starting in chapter 7, the rest of 1 Corinthians, essentially Paul responding to the Corinthians regarding the matters they wrote about. So things they wrote to him in a letter, he's going to respond. And so he's going to touch on topics like marriage and food sacrifice to idols and proper worship versus idolatry and how do we use our spiritual gifts and what about the resurrection of the body? All those things are going to be coming in the, the remaining chapters of 1 Corinthians. But when it comes to marriage, the Corinthians had chased after another slogan. And we've, we've seen this. The Corinthians loved their slogans. And they were chasing after this slogan. They were asserting this. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Where this exact slogan comes from, we're, we're not sure. But if we sort of remind ourselves of what was happening in the church in Corinth, I think we can see what, where, this would, where this sort of would come from. Remember, the Corinthians had been influenced by wisdom that told them that they were super spiritual. And, and how this wisdom had been playing out in some of their lives is that they were starting to disregard the importance of the body. And so on the one hand, you had those who were saying, hey, the body is going to pass away. And, and as food is for the body and the body for food, so sex is for the body and the body for sex. And so we can engage in sexual immorality because ultimately it doesn't matter because my body is going to pass away. What matters is the immaterial part of me. So you had some folks doing that. On the other hand, you had folks who were saying this, hey, in the new age to come, we're not married or given in marriage. And so the spiritual thing to do to, to live as one in the age to come is not to engage in sex and marriage. And so you had some that were chasing after sexual morality and some that were practicing celibacy in marriage. And here's what we need to understand. These are two sides of the same coin. 
the roots of the problem is coming from the same place on both ends. The Corinthians had bought into a spirituality that made them ignorant and selfish, caused them to disregard ethics and obligations to others. What was important to them was this. I want to signal my spirituality. I want to show you how spiritual and mature I am and that my body is my own. I can do whatever I want with it. And so this is what was underneath the teaching of the slogan. And the Apostle Paul is going to refute this slogan following several trains of argument here. First, in verse 2, he writes this, But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Because sexual immorality is so common, husbands, wives, you need to be practicing sexual relationship with each other. You need to be engaging in that. Don't neglect that. Now, it's common to read because sexual immorality is so common as Paul sort of saying, hey, look, there's sexual temptation in the world that's sort of out there and you want to be careful with it. And so to avoid it, you need to be practicing sex within your marriage. You were sort of reading it as Paul is calling in to avoid the temptation by practicing sex in marriage. However, that's not exactly what Paul is saying. And it's important to recognize this. Well, what is translated as because sexual morality is so common in the Greek is literally this, because of the sexual immoralities. And this term, the sexual immoralities, was a way to capture ongoing, pervasive, serious sin that the Corinthians were actually practicing. And so the essence of this statement is not warning against sort of this hypothetical temptation out there. Paul is actually pointing them and saying, because of the sexual immorality, you are actually practicing what's actually going on in the church. Paul is reasoning from this place. Sin is taking place in the Corinthian church. And here again is what was likely happening. You had married couples. And so whether both husband and wife together, or, or maybe just the husband, or maybe just the wife. They were deciding to be, quote-unquote, spiritual by choosing to be celibate in marriage. But, and, and as we see sort of referenced earlier in, in chapter 6, there were those men in the church that were visiting prostitutes. And so what, you had, what was happening is within marriage, you had spouses or one husband and one wife saying, hey, celibacy is the way to go in marriage because that's what you need to be doing in the new age. And then you had men in particular saying, well, sometimes I have physical needs. And so I'm going to go get those physical needs gratified. And so they were going to and visiting prostitutes. And so essentially, here's what you had happening. The, the Corinthians had told themselves, Hey, to be spiritual is to be celibate in marriage because that's how you live in the new age. But because the body's passing away, if we need to gratify desires, we can go visit prostitutes. I mean, talk about a backward, distorted, arrogant, selfish spirituality. I mean, they had this backwards to where they weren't fulfilling marital responsibility, but they were justifying going and visiting and practicing sexual immorality. And so Paul confronts this arrogant, backward, and utterly confused view by saying this, look, your belief that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, that's causing you to fall into sin. The, the fruits of that belief, the fruit of that slogan is not godliness, but sin. It's not leading you to be spiritual, but to be sinful. You have it backwards. And so Paul is rejecting this slogan. He's rejecting their belief out of hand because the fruits of this belief is sin. It's leading them to sin. So that's, that's sort of the first line 
of argument against the statement. From this point, Paul adds in verse 3 that the sexual relationship in marriage is part of covenantal commitments. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a husband or wife to her husband. And so look, in marriage there is a duty, there is a responsibility and obligation you have to your spouse. When you commit yourself in covenantal marriage, you are committing your entire self, your, yourself both physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, all of you. Marriage is fundamentally a self-giving relationship, and this also includes the sexual relationship within marriage. You commit, when you commit yourself to marriage, you're committing yourself sexually, not just faithfulness, not just I am not going to participate in this with anybody else, but you're committing to saying, I'm giving this part of myself to you. I'm opening up myself physically, emotionally, and spiritually in the act of sex, and I'm giving myself to you. That's what Paul is highlighting. It is fundamentally a part of the marriage commitment and the self-giving nature of marriage. Also, as Paul adds in verse four, a wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. And so in the covenant of marriage, your body, your body now is no longer yours alone. You are committing your body, you're giving your body to your spouse. It's for them, it's for their good. And one of the ways, not, not the only way, but one of the most significant ways that we give our bodies and commit our bodies to our spouse is in the act of sex. I mean, you consider how intimate and vulnerable this act is. I mean, we're laid bare physically and spiritually and emotionally. And we're saying in a very powerful and intimate way, all that I am belongs to you. All that I am, I give to you. My body, I, I give it to you. I, I, I'm not claiming rights to myself. I, I'm not holding any back. My body is now yours for your good, your joy, your flourishing, your pleasure. I am yours. And this is the role and this is the importance and this is the power of sex in marriage is when you are self-giving, when you, we are letting go of protection and when you're putting up walls and barriers and it's like, no, I'm giving my all to you for your good. And so to adopt a belief that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, to, to, to neglect the sexual relationship or withhold the sexual relationship is to fundamentally undercut what marriage is about. It is to fundamentally do damage and violence to the nature of the covenantal commitment and the nature of what sex is intended to be. This is what Paul is, this is how Paul is deconstructing and attacking and going after this slogan. Now, in verses five and six, we see that he does grant an exception. He writes, do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. So look, there may be circumstances where you do decide to abstain from sex. But to do that well, Paul highlights some things first. You must both agree. It's mutual. It's working together. It's not one person making a unilateral decision. Two, you do so with a purpose. And Paul says here to devote yourselves to prayer, meaning for the Corinthians, if they were going to abstain, what they needed to do is devote themselves to a time of being before the Lord, to doing some sort of some heart-level, soul-level work on themselves. And then finally, it must be for a set, limited amount of time. 
And so in the Corinthians case, Paul says, hey, you all lack self-control, and so you need to set a timer on this. But for those that maybe don't lack self-control, you still need to set a timer on this because sexual intimacy is a vital part of marital intimacy in the marriage relationship. And so what Paul recognizes here is that sex isn't the be-all and end-all, but he's saying, hey, this is important. And so if you are going to abstain, make sure you're doing it purposefully. But his overall point is this. Sex is to be a vital part of the self-giving nature of marriage. It's an expression of the covenantal commitment that you made with your spouse before God and before others. And so to withhold sex, to neglect a sexual relationship, is to withhold yourself and to withhold and neglect covenantal commitment. And friends, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, if the point of marriage is to reflect the love and the intimacy Christ has with his church, as Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 tells us, which is, then this is a picture of self-giving love, then when our marriages lack us giving, to, giving ourselves to each other in the sexual relationship, when, when sex is not a self-giving act, then our marriages are not modeling the Christ-like love that they're called to, and our marriages are not walking in the power that God intends them to do. This is Paul's point. This is the essence of what he is getting at. And so, with this understanding of the passage, let's make some application. Let's, let's, let's apply this text. And as we do, like I said, I want to I deconstruct some ways this, ta- this passage has been taught and applied and hopefully give you a much more biblical view of how to walk out this passage. And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the common ways, because sexual immorality is so common, has been interpreted and applied as this. Paul presents sex in marriage as a way to combat temptation towards sexual sin. And so if you want to avoid sexual sin, make sure you're having plenty of sex within marriage. And in fact, this, if your spouse is struggling with sexual sin, it probably means you're not having enough sex. And so husbands, do you want to keep your wife from having an affair? Make sure you're having enough sex with her. Wives, do you want to keep your husband from looking at pornography? Make sure you're having enough sex with him. Or even more, if he has a pornography addiction, if you want to help him fight that addiction or keep him from that addiction, make sure you're having enough sex with him. How many of you heard this or read this? Oh, come on. If you've read any, any popular evangelical book on sex, listen to any conference on sex, listen to any evangelical family-centered organization talk about sex, this is what they've said. So I know most of you have heard this. Friends, let me tell you this. It is incredibly pervasive, but it is incredibly flawed. Incredibly flawed. Or how about this? How verses three through five are commonly applied. Husband and wife should fulfill their marital duty. Or your bodies don't belong to you, but, but to your spouse. And do not prive one another. Look, almost every single evangelical book on sex, almost every single evangelical conference on sex, or every single evangelical pro-family organization teaches this, that this passage means that a spouse should be getting sex whenever they want. A person is always obligated, even if perhaps they're tired or physically ill, or physically limited, or in pain, or if there's emotional or relational conflict, there's no excuse If your spouse is asking for sex, they should be getting it. In other words, this passage teaches that a spouse can never say no to sex. Otherwise, you're depriving your spouse. How many have heard this one? 
Again, I know if you've read any of the books, listened to the conferences, listened to the organizations, I know you've heard this one way or another. And again, incredibly pervasive, incredibly flawed. So how should we be interpreting this passage? and How should we be applying this passage? Well, for one, as we already saw, because sexual immorality is so common, it's not a reference to sort of just general sexual temptation out in the world, but Paul pointing to specific sexual sin taking place in the church. Now, does a healthy sex life in your marriage keep you from sexual sin? Absolutely but not in the way that common evangelical teaching tells you. Because listen, the, the, the thrust of 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 is that sex in marriage is an expression of self-giving love, self-giving commitment. But the common application strips all of that away and reduces sex to sin avoidance. It, it reduces sex to gratifying body desires so you don't fall into sin. And, and so look, sexual sin and you need to understand this, sexual sin is more than just issues of lust and self-control. Sexual sin is also about broken relational dynamics that you are trying to heal through the sexual act. And so when we start talking about healthy sexual relationships in marriage, keeping you from sin, the way that it does that is not by, hey, let me gratify my desires and so I can avoid sin, but rather by building a healthy relational dynamic through the very thing this passage tells you to do. Self-giving love, self-giving commitment, sacrifice, building up your spouse. That is how you keep yourself from sexual sin. That is how you build, or excuse me, that's how you avoid falling into sexual temptation. Listen to the difference. Sex as self-giving loving commitment or sex as sin avoidance. Which sounds more like modeling Christ-like love? you see the problem in common evangelical teaching? It's gutted the essence of this passage. Also, as Rebecca Lindenbach puts it in the book, The Great Sex Rescue, to treat sex merely as a way to gratify desires or to, in order to avoid sin or to deal with pornography or other sex addiction is to treat your spouse like methadone. You all know what methadone is. It's, it's a drug that is prescribed to help uh, heroin addicts overcome their addiction. Is your, wife, is your spouse, is your husband and your wife methadone? Is that how you're treating them? Look, your spouse is not your methadone. Your spouse is not your way to affix, to gratify bodily desires. Your spouse is not, that, that, that is not what the sexual relationship is to be. It is to be self-giving love. Moreover, and this is so important that you hear me, your spouse is not your salvation. Your spouse is not your savior. Marital sex is not the power to overcome sin. It's not the way in which you walk in freedom and holiness and godliness. Do you know what is? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of God the Father. That's your salvation. That's your freedom, not marital sex. And furthermore, the point of Paul's exhortation in verses three through five, that, that husbands and wives should fulfill their marital obligation, that your bodies don't belong to your, you, uh, but to your spouse, and that you should not deprive one another. The thrust of all that, the, the point of all that is not what you can get, but what you give. Common evangelical teaching has made this backwards. It's about what you can give. Its emphasis is on the self-giving nature of sex, not justification to use your spouse to get as much sex as you want when you want. 
Again, which sounds more like the love of Christ? Now look, do you have sexual obligation to your spouse? Absolutely, absolutely. But that is to be expressed in self-giving love and commitment, not making demands that, hey, I have privileges and I have rights and you have to give those to me. That's not how this passage calls us to live. Now look, it may be that you're saying no to the sexual relationship in your in, in your marriage, selfishly. It may be that you're withholding sexual intimacy from your spouse selfishly and out of pride and, and out of self-protection. And look, this passage does confront you. It does call you to, to stop the self-protecting, stop being selfish and prideful and give yourself to your spouse. However, do you understand that saying no is not the same thing as depriving people? I mean, you can say no and it not be depriving do you give your kids food every time they ask for it? Every time they, have a they ask for a snack, do you give it to them? Hopefully not. However, are you depriving them from food? No, because you recognize that sometimes saying no, there's a good reason and there's a purpose to say no. You're trying to teach them something or there's something else going on. And so saying no is not the same thing as depriving. And so listen, there are times when saying no can be done and it not be depriving. It can be done with purpose. It can be done for a good and healthy reason. Here's what's else. If you can't hear your spouse saying no without getting angry and frustrated and angsty and doing all kinds of weird emotional things to you, can I just lovingly tell you, you've made sex an idol? Like you are obviously trying to heal something in your soul through that sexual relationship. And so your spouse saying no to you is actually good you should be abstaining for a while and doing some heart-level soul work before the Lord and, and spending time in prayer and reflection in order to deal with what is going on in your soul. And so saying no can be good when it is done purposefully. First City Church, friends, for the sake of our marriages, for the, for the health of our own body and our soul, for the glory of Christ, we need to dispel these unbiblical interpretations and applications. We need to dispel interpretation that leads, an application that leads to spouses using each other, that leads to guilt and shame and sex, that leads to husbands and wives feeling that they're at fault for their spouse's sexual sin, and that leads men and women to believe that they're at the mercy of their sexual desires. And so I wonder, let me ask this, I wonder how many of you here this morning, and you don't, you don't need to raise your hand on this one, how many of you here this morning, you sit here and if you're honest, you're saying, I, I, I feel used. Like I'm carrying the shame of feeling used by my spouse. And, and even as I, I try to correct this teaching, you, you've, been, you've drank so deeply from that teaching, that common evangelical teaching. You've read the books, you've listened to the talks, and, and you've been so formed and shaped by this that even when I speak this, it, it's hard for you to say, I, I can't li see living any other way. Like the formation goes so deep. But can I tell you, Brother, sister, friend, standing on the authority of the word of God, which you have heard and listened and what you're doing, it's wrong. Step out of the shadow and the yoke of that bad teaching and step into the freedom in Jesus Christ. Or for some of you, others of you, how many of you have used this passage in common teaching to, to justify using your husband or your wife to curb desire and get sex whenever you demand it? How many of you actually use this to justify 
and, and, and in some ways even make, even attempt to try to heal what's broken inside of you. Look, if you're doing this selfishly and pridefully, I, I want to tell you this, God opposes that. God opposes you. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble and he calls you to repent and turn from that selfishness and pride and begin to self-give rather than make demands and take. But maybe you're here this morning and you just struggle with sexual sin and you've read all the books and trying to fight your sexual sin and you've heard all the teaching and this is what you've been told. This is what you think and you've thought is the right way to do this. But friend, can I tell you, you've been misled. You've been misled. It is wrong and it is damaging. And I want to encourage you to turn from that sinful behavior. I want to call, call, call you to turn from using your spouse and walk in the freedom that Jesus offers. And actually experience forgiveness and healing for what is broken in you through the power of Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing, the beautiful irony is that the healing and the wholeness and the reformation from all that bad application and all that bad teaching that you and I need comes when we properly apply this passage. Like we avoid sexual temptation. We walk away from sexual immorality when we commit ourselves, body and soul, to our spouses. When we live in such a way where we're gonna serve and sacrifice and build up our spouse. When, when that's our heart, when that's our desire, when that's our posture, then the act of sex in marriage becomes this beautiful way that we serve and we sacrifice and we encourage our spouse. Listen, when sex for both husband and wife becomes fundamentally about self-giving, when it comes about what I can give, not what I can get, when it's about love and cherishing, not getting a fix, when it's about committing yourself, not making demands, wow, then sex becomes this beautiful powerful, healthy, sanctifying, Christ-glorifying, mutually enjoyable act in which we model self-giving love. Friends, when that is our heart, when that is our posture, this is when we properly live out 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. Not when we're trying to gratify desires and not when we're, we're, we're trying to avoid sin, but when we're self-giving of our spouse through the act of sex. But here's the stark reality. We can't do this on our own. Friends, we can't do this in our own strength. Like on our own, in and of ourselves, we're always going to make sex about us. In and of ourselves, we're gonna be slave to those sexual desires and sexual temptations. We are going to use our spouse. We are going to make demands. We are in self-pity gonna to run to sexual immorality when we don't get what we want. We will be trapped in sin, in and of ourselves, our sin, even in our even in the act of sex in marriage will be another way that we rebel and are prideful and sin against God. But here's our hope. Friends, here's our hope for us this morning. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, self-giving love. While we were still sinners, God the Father sends Jesus to this world for us. And what does Jesus do? He walks the perfect life. He, he lives the perfect life that you and I could never live for us. And he not only lives his life, he dies for us the full and perfect and complete payment for our sins. But he not only dies, he is resurrected in glory and in power, victorious over every sin, every evil, and even over death itself. And he ascends into heaven as our resurrected and reigning glorious king. And here's the promise of the gospel. The promise for you this morning is if you turn from your sin,
Turn from your pride. Turn from your selfishness and turn to Christ in faith. Full and complete forgiveness. New life in Christ. New life in Christ where you experience washing and cleansing from all your guilt, all your shame. Full and complete forgiveness. And now you are welcomed as a son, as a daughter, cherished by God, loved by God. Friends, through Jesus Christ, through new life in Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, our marriages, the the sexual relationship in our marriages can now express and model Christ-like love. We can walk through the power of the gospel. We can walk in the power. And we can walk out 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. And so, in conclusion, are you weighed down with the guilt of how you've used your spouse? Do, do you carry the shame? Are you crushed by the shame of how you've been used? Maybe you feel trapped by sexual sin. Let me encourage you, turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus and find forgiveness, find healing, find wholeness, find cleansing, find love. And if you're here this morning and you recognize that the way in which the marriage, sexual relationship between you and your spouse is going right now is broken and you feel stuck, you feel trapped, you feel overwhelmed, let me encourage you, don't fight this alone. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is your salvation. Turn to Christ, yes. But Christ also gives you his church. He gives you his people. So don't fight this alone. Invite other people into this. Ask others to walk alongside you, whether they be brothers and sisters in Christ or whether it be pastors or maybe even getting good, wise, godly Christian counselors that can help you walk through and, be, and begin to undo some of the damage and, and reprogram and reform your heart so that you can live out a sexual relationship in marriage that is fundamentally self-giving and is a, is a commitment. And so First City, in a society that makes sex all about what we can get. Let us follow a better way. As part of the evangelical church that has sadly followed poor teaching, let's model a more biblically faithful way. And let us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, commit to making sex in our marriages an expression of self-giving love and intimacy that images Christ-like love. Amen? Let's pray.